welcome, <laughs> welcome to Reptile Fight Club. Justin Jules, with me as always, the Mister Master Chuck Poland. Say hi to the people, Chuck. Hi, people. Is that what we did last time? That's exactly what we did intro. last time. I know. Uh, I'm yeah. sorry. We're, I, we're getting into I mean, a groove here. <laughs> Papa needs a new bag. <laughs> you always have the the uh, farewell statements, I suppose. But well, you got to yeah work on your yeah 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you right. caught me off guard. You just you you know you you gotcha. you ran you ran with it, and I was still walking, and here we are. Gotcha. All right. Well, any uh, anything to report? <laughs> uh things going well yeah things are good things are good um mm -hmm. nothing nothing major to report i'm yeah. here I'm we've here. been recording uh recording a lot lately so we've kind of been yeah well on some of the others but you know and, and you know and today's a a good day to not bs because we've got a nice uh guest on today so oh we, it'll be you great. don't want to leave him waiting anyway no so today we are going to fight with dr travis wyman um, so we're really excited. We're going to be talking about viral pathogens, which is uh, near and dear to my heart. So you all a, should see the debate. smile on Justin's face. It's huge. <laughs> Assuming huge. I win the coin toss. I mean, I, I'm not going to get ahead of myself. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. In good, to... <laughs> I don't know in good conscience that I could take this pleasure from you. Okay. But I well, might. I, I, appreciate I might. Yeah, you I might. might. You yeah. Might. <laughs> all right. Well, without further ado, uh, welcome to the show, Travis. Thanks for good being here. Gentlemen, thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming right. on. Yeah, well, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, where you fit into herpetoculture and, and your profession and all that good stuff. Um, so I am a doctorate in microbiology and molecular genomics. Um, I work mostly in, you know, forensic type capacity. Cool. And where I fit in the hobby, um, I'm just kind of all over the place. Uh, you know, I, I drop into the ball groups. I drop into the weird colubrid groups. I drop into the Morelia groups, um, strange little boids and things. Um, I'm kind of known as being a bit of a, I don't want to say an expert per se, but I'm, I'm a go-to for a lot of people because I can, take those scientific concepts and stuff and bring them down to more of a, a layman or a human level. Awesome. Yeah. That's the the way to do it. I think at least that's the, that's the approach I like to take as well. So yeah. uh, kindred spirits here. Yes. Um, cool. So do you, do you keep any, uh, are you keeping any animals or? Yeah, I have um, kind of a diverse collection. Uh, like you're saying 70 ish, I think. Uh -huh. Okay. Yeah. Can't count. Count yeah. is bad. Um, <laughs> yeah. About maybe half of them are ball pythons. That's okay. just kind of something I do for myself mostly because you get to play with the genetics and yeah. that's, you know, <laughs> genetics is near and dear to my heart. That's, you know, where the majority of my education and mind is. And it, uh -huh. it allows me to bring my work home with me without actually bringing my work home with me. <laughs> um, yeah. And, you know, the paint jobbing is fun, but I do most of the paint jobbing for myself, just working for things that I know I'm going to like and mm -hmm. whatever surplus type of stuff I have is generally what I'm selling off. I'm not looking to make, you know, make a name for myself or make a business for myself out of it. Um, sure. I also have then the other half of the collection, which is a bunch of assorted things. So I've got mm -hmm. uh, 1.2 Brettles. Nice. 1.1 um, 1 .1 Calabar. 
Boas, mm-hmm. cool. uh, 1.1 uh, Ramphiophis beak snakes, a 1.0 Rostratus beaked snake. I have, I've lost count of the Kukri snakes. I think I've got, <laughs> I think I ended up keeping 3.3. So I've got 2.2 breeders and 1.1 from the mm-hmm. clutch that I produced. Uh, rubber boas oh cool yeah Um, those are local species for me (laughs) yeah yeah Uh, i've got some hog nose so those are more my kids but got those uh i've got some alterna i have i have a morning gecko just one Uh yeah Is that another uh, scientific interest thing? Yeah, because um, one can turn. Is it a parthenogenic? Uh, yeah, it's the parthenogenic type, one. Yeah. I um, I actually, I I got a small colony of them because I had, so I obviously I like little weird species, and mm-hmm. I picked up some wild caught species out of Africa, and they're they're not rodent feeders by nature, so <laughs> they would not take yeah. anything for me, and so I picked uh, up some morning geckos and. Unfortunately, as often happens when you're trying to establish wild caught populations, they don't always make it. Yeah. But I ended up with still having one morning gecko left over from the little colony that I had started to try and feed them with. And <laughs> so it's now living all by itself in a giant 24, 24, 30 cage and loving yeah. life because it's. I feel like that's called the reverse chuck. Like, as far <laughs> as like coin toss luck, you know what I mean? You're You're set to be a feeder and you make it. You make it uh, as, you make, a, as you a make resident. it to be living in a mansion, yeah. and yeah, it's, that's, it's great. It's wonderful. That's kind of the jackpot, yeah. which is often called the reverse chuck around here. That's amazing. <laughs> um, yeah. My kids also got some cresties, and mm-hmm. she has a tannin bar scrub. Nice. Oh wow, yep. cool! So you're you said your kids? How you have? Uh, yeah, I've got yeah. two kids. Uh, one nice. eighteen and one seven. Okay. And they're into the reptiles to some extent, at least? Or? Yeah. Um, yeah. Eldest cool. is, she's more into them. You know, she's the yeah. one with the, the hog nose, the cresties, and the tannin bar. Um, mm-hmm. Youngest m- more likes to just be kind of involved every now and then. Really yeah. loves to show them off to her friends. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but as all good, you know, reptile parents have done, she knows she doesn't get to go into the snake room unless daddy's there. Yep. So she's not just going in and breaking in and bringing snakes out to friends. <laughs> yeah. I, I learned but that it's lesson. It's always, you know, <laughs> come show everybody the snakes. And it's yeah. like, well, they may not want to see the snakes because not everybody thinks they're as cool as you. <laughs> yeah. I learned the lesson early on to not let the kid. Well, he, my son was in there with me and he was a toddler and I was busy, you know, doing stuff. And he was over there fiddling with the heater and he turned the heater up all the way. And I kind of smelled the smell and went downstairs and like the herp room was like at a hundred degrees and half my collection was, you know, fried. And I'm like, awesome. This is wonderful. You know, and I'm a poor grad student, you know, living in a rental with a bunch of snakes in the basement. So it was not a good thing. The, the Ackies were out basking. Like they were like, finally, somebody turned the heat up. This is perfect. (laughs) I'm like, okay, you guys are enjoying this, but everybody else didn't so much. So Yeah, that was a little rough uh, learning curve to not let the kids unattended in the reptile room, even if I'm in there. But yeah, and I've had a, uh, I don't know. Yeah, my kids are, have all kind of been in and in and out of it throughout their lives. And right now my youngest is 
completely in. <laughs> She's been very helpful cleaning skink cages and stuff. So it's a lot of fun when the kids get involved, but yeah. yeah. Cool. Well, sometimes we, fun when the kids get involved. Sometimes. Yeah. yeah. Well, since that incident, it's been all fun. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess there was a bite once I was showing some people, a. Uh, a uh, ball python. It was this big pastavi female that was always pissed off. And I pull out the cage and I could see she was not happy to, you know, be being shown. Yeah. So I was just leaving her in the cage, holding the cage and, you know, the tub or whatever. I had her in a rack system and, and my daughter reached down to grab her and the oh, thing was, I'm like, no, <laughs> she didn't ask. She just went in for the grab. I'm like, okay, how, well, how did she, how did she handle the bite? It was, it, uh, she, it was, it was pretty like, I think she was more embarrassed in yeah. front of people, yeah, you know, yeah, that yeah. she got bit. And so she yeah. didn't really, it wasn't too big of a trauma, but she yeah. was like, she, she went out and went and saw my wife and I'm like, oh, great. <laughs> now mom's knows, you know, I'm in trouble. <laughs> Yeah, I, my I kids have been, never been good at uh, keeping keeping things for my wife Keep, keeping mom yeah. out of the loop exactly yeah. <laughs> yeah. we we ran out of gas once and my son's like i said don't tell your mom because she was always you're gonna run out of gas and then, and then first thing when we get in the door mom we ran out of gas I'm like, thanks buddy thanks, thanks know, for out me. i know how much to trust you <laughs> and uh yeah. when uh when i was living in atlanta we had a just a mutt carpet and she opened the drawer and she was probably about three uh-huh. and she just opened the drawer and reached in to grab her and oh, popped her on the shoot. hand and, yeah. she, and she was fine like she didn't even cry she just kind of looked at yeah. her hand and they closed the drawer like okay fine we <laughs> yeah. but, you know and i was like oh you're fine and she's like yeah no and she's like yeah a little blood and so we washed her hands <laughs> and then when her mother woke up it was snake bit me and she was all yeah. proud of it so. yeah <laughs> yeah i bet your wife was as enthused right <laughs> she, yeah. she didn't think it was as cool yeah <laughs> Nice. So, uh, where did you get your uh, PhD? I got my PhD at Emory. Emory. Okay, that's a good place. We we work with uh, some folks from Emory. They're, they're bright bright group there. So, yeah, I imagine it's, it's good, good things place. come out of Emory. Emory. <laughs> nice. Well, cool deal. Well, are you ready to get into this? Ready to get so, into this? Throw down. All right. Well, we got to get the ugliness aside of flipping the coin to see who gets to debate you. So, Let's I'll let Chuck call it in the air here. All right tails okay. it is heads so. ah see i gave that <laughs> yeah, to you that bro works. i gave that, that to you I was, well I was, you know <laughs> no that's that's what happened okay okay yeah. you, you knew you. it was gonna be heads but sure. you called tails just all right. sure. i appreciate that man i appreciate sure. it <laughs> listen all right well i will i will take the 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 uh fight Okay. Should, well, unless you no, really you sh- want. No, you should. Oh, okay, okay. You should. Nobody wants to hear me <laughs> no, debate no, Travis. Sure nobody nobody fine, wants man. to you hear do that. Just fine. <laughs> no. All right. Nobody well, I, I will it. do this. And then uh, I'll let Travis call it to see which side we get. So go ahead and call it. Heads. Heads. It is heads. So you you have the reverse check here. So as I, as I hear it's called. Well done, sir. Well done. <laughs> All right. Well, what what side would you like to take? We're going to. OK, I guess I need to introduce the topic. We're going to talk yeah, about I... uh, testing for pathogens in collections. So, should, you know, is it is it a uh, something we should all be doing or is it something that maybe maybe it's not the the best idea or, or worth it to get tested. So that's the kind of sides we're going to take. So I'll let you pick which side you want. I'll take the pro side. 
Okay. To get tested. Yeah. That, that makes sense where you're <laughs> somebody that's involved with forensic virology. That's a, uh, that's a good, good approach to take. I, think, I mean, so. it's, it's also a side that you could take as well, but you know, yeah, you're the virologist. I, I, yeah. I gotta get, I gotta try and get some advantage here because <laughs> I'm right. sure that you can come up with equally as many reasons not to bother. Well, and vice versa. I mean, that's the the idea, right? We we have we can both talk on either side, and this is a good good topic to discuss and kind of work out some of the some of the, um, the I guess nitty gritty or yeah, some of the issues. And I'm that are, excited. Are down there. <laughs> All right, no, you just keep us easy. from. Uh, Going at each other's throat. Here, yeah, I, you keep us. That's uh, what I'm saying. Down. Pretty easy job for me today, guys. Like, I don't if tempers can, flare, you know? yeah, you guys seem pretty. Yeah. We're pretty, pretty high. Yep, sure. a couple of educated gentlemen uh, having a having yeah. a, a heady discussion. So yeah, we're, no, it'll be good. I, 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 I think the yeah. kind of the dynamics in some of the uh, the social the social kind of norm around this topic is going to be really interesting to flush out. So I am oh yeah, there's. This. Yeah, there's pretty high high tempers on on either side. Of absolutely, the sometimes Abs- you know, and especially with the latest. I this it, this was kind of prompted by uh, Travis was on uh, THP the other night talking about uh, you know this kind of thing, and uh, I I was supposed to be on there with him, and and uh, I had the COVID, so I had to, and I was coughing quite a bit, so I had to bail out there. But um, it was a really great discussion. If you haven't listened to that show, go, go check it out. But um, so hopefully this is kind of a continuation on, or, or kind of a little bit of a different take on, on the whole issue. And we're, we're going to f- maybe focus around serpentiviruses just because that's <laughs> maybe what I have a better interest in, but we could probably talk about other things as well. Um, yeah, it's, which, it's the big focus right now. And it also yeah. seems to be the big, uh, the big boojum right now, as it mm-hmm. were. Yeah. And, and are there, are, I mean, I guess I'm not aware of, are there many, te- can you get a test for uh, like IBD or something other than? There are tests for um, Reptorinovirus okay. and, you know, Paramyxovirus, okay. uh, crypto, yeah. obviously. Sunshine? Is there a sun? I know I th- that's not really an issue here. I so think much, there or? is a test for sunshine. Yeah. It's not so much of an issue here, although, you know, that could just be dumb luck that, you know, the, the mystic German portal hasn't brought it over yeah. here yet. <laughs> yeah, that's um, true. So it okay. might be something to, that people need to keep an eye out for. Um, obviously it's, it's a very nasty pathogen in okay. Australia. Yeah. And it well, sounds I like, don't know, you know about adeno like... and Rio viruses. I don't know if we have yeah. really good, at least not test at home type tests like you can get for NIDO or crypto or something. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll, uh, I mean, it can, we can broaden out, but I, I guess maybe just for ease of discussion, we kind of maybe focus it on serpentovirus or, you know, snake nidoviruses. <laughs> um, I, I say plural nidoviruses cause there are quite a few different kinds. Yeah. Um, and then, so you won the coin toss, do you want to lead us out and, or do you want me to start us out? Um, I'll go ahead and let you start us out. All right, the the deferring. So, uh, uh, d- so just for for clarity's sake, I didn't get to listen to that podcast. So, were a lot of these viruses kind of discussed and flushed out in that podcast? Like, if somebody were to go listen to that, would they kind of understand a little bit better of like some of the viruses you guys are talking about, or do we need um, to lay some it of that work? Probably help. So, the majority of the discussion that we had was on um, both crypto and serpento. So cryptosporidium, if you're not familiar with it, is a protist infection. Um, 
tends to be most prevalent and most detrimental to colubrids. Um, and the serpentaviruses are most commonly seen and tend to hit hardest in the pythons. Mm-hmm. Um, although like there's a turtle nidovirus mm-hmm. that's very closely related that, you know, it was discovered because of a massive, massive wild turtle die off. Yeah. Um, was that just in the Murray, Murray river turtles or were there yeah, other the Murray river that... turtles? Um, yeah. I, I know that a couple of other captive turtles have been found to be mm-hmm. carrying some, you know, some type of related virus, but yeah. it's one of those, you know, is it because somebody had it in their snakes and it's something that is able to jump across, but not really do anything, or is it a completely different virus? Um, yeah. you know, there's also, a, a similar one in shinklebacks. Yeah. Yeah. They had a, they had a big die off too. And that's another yeah. one that was a wild, uh, outbreak, I guess, if you want to call it or, yeah. uh, yeah. Um, so. And we, we touched lightly on the others, uh, you know, the Reptorina virus is what causes IBD and BOAs. Um, we didn't go really deep in that most because none of us were really BOA keepers. So we don't have a ton to go on. Um, you know, we try to speak from on that show. We try to speak from our areas of, I don't want to say authority, but mm-hmm. more familiarity. Sure. Um, uh, paramyxovirus is another one. We just touched on it lightly. Uh, it's another very common one that kind of gets ignored. I think mm-hmm. mostly because everybody freaks out over the other ones, just kind of forgets that it's there. Mm-hmm. And then adenovirus and rheoviruses are things that have been seen, but are a little bit less common. Yeah. So, um, so I guess if, if I'm going to lead us out, um, you know, I, I would kind of start with the idea that these viruses come from nature, you know, as evidenced by the Murray river turtle outbreak and the, the shingleback outbreak and the die-offs in, in the wild of these animals. And, and that, you know, they, they aren't just popping up because they're brought into captivity. Now, um, there definitely can be some mixing and matching where you'd have, uh, serpentoviruses that infect animals that would not typically be infected maybe by that subtype of serpentoviruses. Because when we we're talking about these viruses, there's a lot of different kinds of serpentoviruses and some are more distantly related to, to others. And, and, you know, so they, they, they don't all fit in a nice little package, I guess I'd say. Um, so they can have some diversity among the different, uh, serpentoviruses. And so we, we still are kind of somewhat in the early stages of learning about these. And as we all know, I mean, there's so much money that's, uh, put into, uh, you know, studying snakes and snake viruses. <laughs> and I say that completely <laughs> kidding. Because, that. Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> our industry, there is very little. I mean, the, I I've done a little bit of research with some of the serpentoviruses because of a generous donation from keepers at one of the carpet fests. And so Ooh. we've actually got got those results and I, I have my results ready. We need to publish those. I guess I need to talk to Steven and, and get, get on the, get going with that. But, um, so we, we did look at a, a few antivirals that might treat, uh, serpentoviruses and found some hits. So that's, you know, something encouraging and some hopefully good use of the money. And maybe that leads to something down the road. But, um, so as they come from the wild, you know, there's no real way to, uh, maybe 
eradicate them or keep them completely out of a collection, right? And I would suggest that maybe most, if not all, larger collections have some sort of sepentovirus or, or another in in the collection. Now you can test and and get uh, different results, and and but the presence of a serpentovirus doesn't necessarily cause uh, you know a, an or pose a, a need for panic, right? So um, I've heard a lot of people that would test and get their results and say, oh, this snake has a serpentovirus. I'm going to euthanize it and and euthanize a large part of their collection. And I think that's completely you know unnecessary. So I think a lot of times testing might lead us down a path that shouldn't be gone down, right? And I think that was a, a good part of the discussion um, on THP was that, you know, you know, the, there, there shouldn't be a panic just because you have them, because some may cause disease, others may not, some may be benign, some may just persist in an animal and, and not cause any issues. So um, there needs to be a, a, not just the presence of the virus to cause that, you know, panic button. So I'd start out with that uh, as my leading uh, uh, topic. All right. And I can concede to some level there, like, you know, there's not necessarily a need to panic, but I don't think the panic response alone negates the need to be testing for things. Um, Hmm. You know, I think the tests are necessary and important um, as they would be for any type of pet you keep. You know, if your snake is sick, you should get it tested the same way if your dog is sick. You know, you get it checked out. Your cat is sick. You get it checked out. Your horse is sick. You get it checked out. You don't just sit there and let the animal continue to be sick. Um, You know, doing that and ignoring what is wrong with your animal and whether or not it's something that is going to spread to the rest of your animals can actually make the situation worse. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, and that in and of itself could be part of the reason that we have seen a lot of this panic because early on when people didn't know what they were dealing with, you would, you know, they just pretended like there wasn't anything there. Well, or they they didn't act. The, the, the hobby has this really bad tendency of, you know, we all understand that there aren't a lot of reptile specialist vets. Mm-hmm. So collectively, we've kind of all decided that we know more about medicine for our snakes. Sadly, the medicine that most people have is, well, my snake was wheezing and kind of snotty. So I just turned up the heat and that solves everything because everybody knows that turning up the heat <laughs> is the solution to everything possible. And so you do that with yeah. your sick snake but now your sick snake has got something really nasty and it spreads to the rest of your collection. Whereas if you had tested that snake early on, found out what was wrong with it, then you could have isolated the animal and the rest of your collection would have been fine. And maybe you would have lost this one snake, or maybe you would have found out what it was that it had. You know, obviously we don't know of any treatments for, these now, although hopefully Justin's work will give us <laughs> a boost in some regard that way. But yeah. if you had tested and isolated that animal from the beginning, rather than just going with the default, you know, I'm not going to take it to a vet. I know more. I'm just going to bump up the temperature and solve my problem. So the aversion to testing because we don't know enough isn't exactly the best way to take it. You know, we may not know mm. everything there is to know about them. 
but testing to make sure that you know what you're dealing with and then appropriate actions to take with that one animal is extremely important. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree with that. And then, you know, I, I want to make sure that everybody knows that I'm not opposed to testing. And I think it's, you know, definitely knowing what's, what's going on in your collection is very yeah. I mean, helpful. This is, yeah. this is the point of the reptile fight. Club. <laughs> exactly. We have to, we have to pick sides because yeah. we can't just be the reptile, you know, kumbaya club. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Although it does become that sometimes, but sometimes. I, I will say, um, so, you know, we can, we can test and get, results. Um, but a lot of times that might be misleading. Like I said before, you know, you could have a, a NIDO positive test or a serpentovirus positive test. Uh, I, I'll use those interchangeably, I guess, because, you know, most people know it as NIDO virus, but they've kind of changed the name to serpentoviruses. So a little bit of confusion there, but, um, you, you could get a positive, uh, serpentovirus test but it may not be the thing that's causing the disease. And that's, that's always been a struggle for me, you know, when I've gotten things tested and it comes back and they say, oh, it's got this bacterial. Well, that's just a common, you know, normal flora bacteria. And, and they didn't have virus tests at the time. So it could have easily have been some serpentovirus or another before, you know, the, the you, testing was possible. Sorry uh -huh. for the, for the not no, so fast, for the slow guy in the back. Uh, so you're <laughs> saying, you're saying that, that you can have a serpentovirus, but you can have something completely unrelated to that that's manifesting some type like like uh, your 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 outward signs of disease. Like the the serpentovirus is not the cause for disease. Is that what you're well, saying? I, yeah, and and I think uh, Stephen kind of illustrated that on the THP discussion where he did a test and found that there was a serpentovirus, but it was a strain that's not typically known for disease. And he, he did some more deep sequencing and found another viral etiology present um, that was more likely to be the cause of disease. But the, the, you know, the test just came up as serpentovirus. So I without see. that further deep sequencing, he wouldn't have known what the, the true uh, pathogen potentially causing the disease was. And, and I don't know that he knows exactly what was causing the disease. So, yeah. You know, but the idea that we, you know, you're trying to kind of peel that onion back a little bit. And the first thing you find is like, ah, there's disease. Yep. That's not necessarily, if you were to continue to peel the onion back, maybe you find something else that, that could be potentially at the heart of yeah. what, what's causing, uh, outward signs of disease. And I guess, so if you do get a, you know, identify something, especially if it's a virus, well, then what, you know, I, yeah. I, it's a long way off from treatment. My results, you know, they're very preliminary and just in cell culture, you know, using uh, Stephen's great uh, cell culture model of, of serpentovirus infection. And, um, but so, you know, there's a little ways to go. And, and uh, if we, you know, if we had a, had something to treat these with, that might be a good first option. Like, oh, your serpentovirus test came up positive. Let's treat it. Now, the other, I, you know, we don't know if treating it will eradicate, you know, get rid of the virus completely or if it will just knock it down and kind of put it into, you know, if they can go dormant or if they can hide out from the immune system or hide out from uh, a antiviral treatment regimen. We, you know, these are all questions that need to be answered down the road. And, you know, I'm, I'm not saying it's, it's, you know, hopeless right now, but you know, there's, there's not much you can do if it's a virus infection other than isolate the animal or, or euthanize the animal, you know, move it to somewhere else, uh, alter your keeping regimen. And in, in, you know, my opinion, if you get a, a snake that's sick and you say, oh, this 
this seems like it, it's probably some kind of viral infection. I'm just going to isolate and treat it as if it was, and, you know, make the decision based on the disease rather than, you know, the test result. Um, I, you know, I think you're going to have the same outcome to, to some extent. You may not know exactly what's causing the disease, but I would contend that you might not know what's exactly causing the disease, even if you get a positive test result. So maybe another reason, you know, that testing is all that it's cracked up to be necessarily. <laughs> yeah, you, okay, fair, but you're still essentially using the testing to inform your decision there. So yeah, mm -hmm. you could test and come back, have it be negative for the virus that you tested for, or the viruses that you tested for. And so that then leads you with a, well, what do I do? Um, you know, well, then the next step is, well, if you've eliminated viruses, test for bacteria. Because, mm -hmm. you know, if it's something bacterial, there are treatments for the bacteria. Yeah. Um, so, again, just ignoring the idea of, well, but the test could give me the wrong answer still doesn't solve the problem that, you know, yeah, it could give you the wrong answer. It could give you the right answer. You're still using the test to inform your decision as to how you treat that animal. Now, yeah, I guess you could just do away with all testing of everything and isolate your animal. But as I mentioned earlier, the hobby doesn't tend to do that. You know, mm -hmm. they, they get a sick snake and their solution is just, I'll bump up the temperature. They still leave the animal in their own, you know, the, the same drawer in the same rack with all the other animals that they have. Um, mm -hmm. you know, they, very few people in this hobby have dedicated quarantine rooms that they enforce good quarantine procedures through. They almost certainly don't have both a dedicated quarantine room and a dedicated sick animal room yeah. Yeah. along with their main collection room. So mm -hmm. if you can inform your decision as to how you're going to be moving forward with this animal, you know, you test it, it comes back viral negative, then you know, okay, I don't have a virus, but maybe it's, you know, what else could it be? Could it be bacterial? Could it be protist? Could it be fungus? You know, you test for those other things, then you find out, okay, well, it's bacterial, I need to give it antibiotics. Mm -hmm. Then you can give it the treatment of bacterial infection, while not absolutely non-contagious, maybe less contagious. So it might be okay to keep it in its tub in with your main collection. It may not be. It may be something that you want to get out because it's just going to be able to spread as nastily along the way. Hmm. But you still need that testing in some form or other to inform your decision as to how you're going to treat your animal. Yeah. And, and I think too, you know, people, uh, keeping any, any animal, you know, if you, if you do have a sick snake, um, if you don't have an extra facility or somewhere to put it, you know, when it's sick, you definitely need to adopt some sort of, um, protocol to avoid contaminating other snakes. And this should just be, you know, something that every keeper does. If you have a sick snake, you isolate it. If you can't isolate it physically, then you need to isolate it through your your, how you work with your animals. That should always be the last animal you mess with, or it should be um, worked with on a different day from the other animals. You don't open its cage. You don't hold the animal. You don't try to feed it something. And then if it doesn't eat, you give it to something else. You know, that's, it's always the last step in your routine. 
and you change your clothes or, you know, you know, gloves or whatever, you know, between that animal and anything else. Uh, and so, you know, we, we do similar things in the lab where you have, you know, protective uh, clothing and equipment and stuff that you, you know, try to re reduce the uh, transmission from one, one thing to another. So these uh, kind of practices should be with any keeper, you know? So if you do identify a sick snake, even if you're, if you don't know exactly what's causing it or the, the test results are inconclusive, you should be um, working with that animal last and not, uh, you know, trying to spread things. And, you know, the, the, the biggest cause of uh, spread of a disease is probably us and the fomites, you know, of our hands. And even if you're wearing gloves, you can transmit, you know, disease from one animal to another. So just wearing gloves or, or, you know, sanitizing your gloves once in a while is, is not necessarily a foolproof plan to prevent disease spread. Sorry, Chuck, you wanted to ask Yeah, me. no, I, I just was wondering. I, I mean, I've never really seen, you know, like we talk about how it's, it should be standard practice to implement some type of a, a you know, a, a viral or, or you know, disease, biosecurity. Thank you. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Missing that word, um, you know, to implement some type of biosecurity. But I've never really seen like I mean, I you know, I know Justin's and we've talked about this. So I know some some very basic biosecurity measures that one even somebody who doesn't have dedicated rooms and a lot of space can take to at least have some form of reasonable biosecurity. Have, have Is there is there is there a published, you know, have we published something like that? Is there you know, is there, uh, you know, places people can go if they're like, well, I, I, I want to do that, but I don't know how to, I'm not really slick on what I need to do or, or what I shouldn't do. Absolutely. You know, have you, have you guys ever seen any, anything like that around? I can't think of anything within the hobby that's like legitimately published out just, mm -hmm. you know, word of mouth conversations and stuff through groups and obviously on social media, but social media is horrible for historic retention yeah um yeah you know but things like you know justin's right you know don't use the same tools with sick animals um mm -hmm. but you know i would add in you know wash your tools you know mm -hmm. i i know way too many people who will take you know their 12 inch forceps and they've got you know one pair and they just feed all the rats you know, and if you've got a sick snake and you decide to feed it on a different day, you still use that one pair of 12 inch forceps to feed the sick snake. And then it just goes right back on the rack. You know, yeah. if you're done feeding your animals, wash your forceps, you know, gloves are good, but gloves can also give people a sense of false security. They're like, mm -hmm. I've got to put gloves on so I can handle my snakes. And they go through their entire room with one pair of gloves. Well, mm -hmm you might as well have just gone through your entire room without the gloves because it's no different than if you just went through with your hands. So you yeah. need to change your gloves or, you know, wipe them down with, you know, a Clorox wipe or something in between animals. Don't put your animals in the same <laughs> one tub. You know, if you're opening a drawer, take the animal out, put it in a tub, clean the drawer out, put it back in the drawer, open the drawer, pull the animal out, put it in the same tub, you know, have different tubs or wipe the tub down in between. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's, it's kind of common sense things, but at the same time, the reptile hobby does things in its own way. So they, they don't always make 
the same common sense. Um, what? <laughs> <laughs> you know, Justin alluded to how, you know, like in our industry, we have things, you know, there are protocols for how to work with viruses and bacteria in labs. And depending on the nature of the lab, you know, we have different biosecurity levels as we call them, you know, mm -hmm. and like at a school or, you know, in Justin's lab, they might have, you know, basically BSL one or BSL two, which is you can work on it on an open bench, either, you know, with just your street clothes and a pair of gloves, or you might need to put on a lab coat and, you know, booty covers, depending on the room, you know, but as you bump up to scarier organisms, you know, you've got to work with it inside of a biosafety containment hood and, you know, with gloves, wearing scrubs and a lab coat and uh, an air purifying mask or, you know, all the way up to, you know, if anybody watched the, uh, the hot zone sh show on national geographic, you know, you've got that full on bubble suit <laughs> that you have to wear because you're working with yeah. something that's just so dangerous that if you get it, you're basically going to die because there's no treatment. So isolate yourself completely. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's a little bit ridiculous to expect us as pet owners to do that with all of our pets, but that's not just the way we, I mean, we don't do that with our dogs and our cats either, but you know, if your dog has a really gnarly infection, you might try and confine it to a different room from the rest of your dogs so that you're mm -hmm. not spreading it around the same way you should kind of try and, you know, segregate your snake. You're not going to give your dog that's sick. You're not going to use the same feed bowl to feed all of your dogs. You're not going to use the same water bowl. So. Yeah. Yeah. And I think just that understanding that, that we can be the ones to move around pathogens from cage to cage, that's, you know, a, a good step and, you know, the good first step to understand you are the, <laughs> you're the, you are the you're vector. The of, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You're the vector. If you're, you're exposing animals that are uninfected to materials from animals that are infected and, you know, viruses are shed and, and, you know, that's the virus's main objective, I guess, is to make more of itself. And, and that's done intracellularly. So that's done within the host and, and then the viruses are released and they have to make their way from one host to another. And sometimes that's through vectors like mosquitoes. Sometimes that's through coughing, like, you know, with COVID, you, you know, it's a respiratory illness. And so people are coughing that stuff up and, or you're breathing it in or, or just exhaling, you know, it can be, um, just in normal breathing. But, um, so for, for, I, I believe for serpentoviruses, they're not like, uh, an airborne type, like it's not, you know, in the room and, and going from cage to cage through the air as easily, you know, possibly, but not, not likely that way. <laughs> Mostly it's through, uh, contact, physical right? contact. Through, yeah. From... I mean, that's, that's the assumption. Yes. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. again, as you noted, there's not a lot of <laughs> money that goes into the study of these things. So mm -hmm. we base it more on, uh, you know, extrapolation, but yeah, it's, it's most likely through, you know, fomites, you know, the, mm -hmm. the contact, you know, your animal is drooling your animals while they cough, you know, a snake doesn't cough the same way a human coughs. So even though they cough, they're not <laughs> yeah. spreading it everywhere, you know, but you know, they, their cough still probably expunges some of the virus, but it's, it's more likely 
still staying within their more immediate surrounding. It's, you know, Mm -hmm. it's contact between, um, you know, it's also potentially fecal oral Mm -hmm. route. You know, if you get a, you know, sufficiently contaminated feces and, you you know, when you're wiping up again, if you've got it on your gloves and you miss that you've got snake crap on your glove and then you pick up your next snake, now you may be transferring it over to that snake. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So a fomite is just something that the virus can hit your right on. You know, it could be tongs, it could be your hands, it could be, you know, a a food object, um, anything that, you know, is potentially exposed to the virus can transmit that virus. So that's what we're talking about when we say fomite. (laughs) Um, Sounds like a, some weird, you know, it's a fun word. It is a (laughs) fun parasite or something. Yeah. yeah. Fomite. (laughs) Fomite. Fomite, you know, it's, it's got the word mite in it, so we all yeah, like, yeah. yeah. Ah, exactly. No, another 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 thing to throw reptile people way off track of it, you know. Like, <laughs> yeah, but just a, a vector for transmission, yeah. and and I'd also talk about um, inactivation. So viruses are pretty wimpy outside of the host. Most, at least, um, serpentoviruses. They're enveloped, so they're easy to kill using household. Um, cleaners, cleaners like disinfectants, ethanol, or you know, rubbing alcohol or bleach. You know, it kills gasoline easily. But with a, a serpentovirus infection, you often <laughs> gasoline. You Sorry. don't use gasoline on your reptiles. I guess don't no, listen do to Chuck. No. Yeah, <laughs> um, but uh, you know, so they're easy to inactivate outside of the body. Um, so, but I'd also I. I I think there needs to be a discussion on um, bio layers, um, biofilms. So when your virus, when your snake is, you know, infected with a serpentovirus, um, a lot of times there's a lot of mucus involved. They're expelling mucus and, and, you know, you'll see stuff in your cages or something. Um, now that, that adds a protective layer to the virus. So they're less easy to, you know, to, to disinfect. It, you know, with a peripheral just wipe down of the cage, you need to get in there and and physically, you know, scrub or remove that biofilm because that's kind of protecting the virus potentially. From so, like the virus is encapsulated, like encapsulated in that in that mucus, and it, yeah, and it gives it a. You know, well, and that's what mucus does, right? It protects our cells or it protects the end, but also kind of. Uh, walls off or, or kind of, you know, it's our body's attempt to get rid of pathogens or viruses or whatever. Yeah. So it's, you know, we, that's why we're spitting out mucus or expelling mucus, trying to get rid of that junk from our body, something foreign from our bodies. Um, so it's in a little package, but that also can potentially protect the, the virus and give it maybe a little more um, duration outside of the body and, and on services. Uh, each virus varies in its ability to survive outside of the host. Um, you know, we know that you can pick up coronavirus from touching things, but it's very, it's, it's a lot less likely to get, you know, COVID through touching mm-hmm. <laughs> through yeah. surfaces versus through the aerosols. And, aerosol, and through, yeah. yeah. But you know, COVID is definitely more of an aerosol yeah. transmission type virus versus, yeah. you know, the serpentavirus being more contact, being more contact because of, you know, so but 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 like to your point travis like like you could potentially have a serpentovirus that is is mildly 
aerosolized and in like a snake like you said that doesn't necessarily cough the way a person would cough and if it if it's mildly transmitted through you know like aerosol droplets then it may not be it, it could still be uh airborne but just not an effective means of transmission so something to still worry about but maybe it's not the primary means that a serpentovirus might uh transmit itself right is that yeah. kind of what we're we're saying yeah i mean my you know again you know when we think about how we keep snakes you know yeah a snake coughing does not have the same force as you know a mammal coughing would so it's not being forced out yeah. the same way um most of us you know it's your snake is enclosed in a box of some form or other whether that's a tub or a cage or a tank and the basically the dead airspace in there does not have a lot of motion so it's not going to be carrying those respiratory droplets out mm -hmm. then for that respiratory droplet to get out and then around into another cage tub tank whatever the transmission that way is very much reduced um, yeah the only time i would be a little bit more concerned about direct respiratory transmission would be like if you have a sick snake and you you know it's your female and you put a male in with her mm -hmm. and now mm -hmm. they're together in the same cage tub whatever but at that point you're also putting two six snakes together with you know something where there's close contact they're all over each other they're possibly biting each other depending on the species that you're dealing with mm -hmm. so the respiratory or the contact at that point is moot. The likelihood of transmission is high because you have mm -hmm. two snakes together with each other. Certainly conceptually easy to see happening. Well, confined within, you know, the walls of a cage, like, yes. you know, so, yeah. And, and also, you know, the, the idea the, of, of social distancing, you know, we are very yeah. well aware of that these days. And, and I think it applies to, you know, veterinary viruses in, in your snakes. If sure. you're keeping them in different areas of the room, if they have to be in the same room, separate them by some physical distance, you're going to, you know, reduce the likelihood to some extent of, of that occurring. Obviously, obviously yeah. putting up signs, just say, one please, more thing you can do. please social distance to your animals is not as effective as <laughs> actually putting in mandates if you if you are the you, mandate you like problems. it's better yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. i got you <laughs> yeah, i got exactly. you so yeah so, and can that's applicable that for, for like you know the serpentavirus but you know when you're dealing with other diseases there are other ways of transmission you know like crypto mm -hmm. one of the main ways that crypto gets spread through collections is i mean it's it's contact based but it's also you know forward flies mm -hmm. you get those little mm -hmm. gnats yeah. and they'll spread it around to every cage in your collection yeah, that's like interesting that. i didn't even so, think about it like yeah yeah yeah. you know, you're you have, right you're, you yeah. have to think about other things if mm -hmm. if serpentivirus is fecal oral it's possible that if you have a really high density viral load in a six snake species and the little fly gets in and then goes to the next tub and spreads it around in there and if you're not you know diligently cleaning yeah. your snakes or you know that fly lands on your snake's face and walks around and tracks microscopic snake crap and viral load onto your snake. You spread it that way. Mm -hmm. um, you know, IBD yeah, is, is believed to at least be transmitted in large part by mites. 
So if you've got a mite infestation, you could be spreading something around. So it's not yeah. it's not always about respiratory. You know, for NIDO, that's a big consideration of if I can confine the respiratory aspect, the snake that's sick is probably not going to spread it to others. But it's not the only thing to consider when you're dealing with diseases as a whole. Yeah. And and I, I thought that was really interesting, that discussion on the the Ford flies by uh, Dac, uh, Zach Lofman, um, Dr. Zach Lofman, um, where he said, you don't think about checking the elbow of your sink, you know, to to reduce yeah. a, a pathogen outbreak, you know, to because they could reproduce in the elbow of your, uh, you know, your drain pipe and, and, and you wouldn't even think about that, you know? And so you could, you could get rid of all of them, but they might come back very the easily. The elbow <laughs> of my drain pipe. <laughs> exactly. Shaking fist in there. Sorry. <laughs> so I, see, that goes why it's important yeah. to test because if you know what you're dealing with, then you know, if you have to pour bleach down all of your drains, there you go. <laughs> see, see, or should you be doing that anyway? <laughs> should that be part of your protocol? <laughs> um, the other uh, thing that, you know, you, you kind of mentioned, you know, when you're putting snakes together for breeding season is, is stress and stress can cause these things, you know, outbreaks to, uh, or, or a sick snake to manifest disease. You know, they may be carrying a virus and uh, a pathogenic etiology, some kind of virus or bacteria, but once they get that stress, that's when the virus or the bacteria kind of has the chance to take over and, and cause real disease you know, that we can observe. And so that's another thing you might test, but if you're testing at the wrong time, if you're testing an animal that's not manifesting disease, that could kind of misinform you. And I think maybe a lot of these people who are euthanizing animals based on a test, um, maybe don't understand that. Like just because it has the pathogen doesn't necessarily mean it's diseased and doesn't necessarily mean that it's a risk to the rest of the collection. So testing an animal that's not displaying disease might be um, not so uh, worthwhile. So that's kind of a, another, another uh, point I'd make of, you know, why, you know, you have to test correctly. If you're not testing correctly, it might misinform you and uh, cause you to do things that, that probably are not necessary. And, and, and so just kind of, for 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 the lay person in the room um so are, are you saying justin that that potentially like maybe a test like if if an if an animal was positive for something but not displaying enough viral load could you potentially get a negative test or do, or yeah. if you you know i mean like, like different tests have different sensitivities i would yeah. imagine yeah. right so so yeah. you potentially if you had an animal in in good good health good fitness um, but, but was still positive. Uh, you may not see that until you see outward signs of disease. And then, uh, then, then, then the test may pick up a viral load that that's significant enough to, to give you a positive result. Yeah. Or as I mentioned, it might be a benign strain, you know, it, right, just because right. you have an idovirus doesn't mean it's a disease causing, you know, I think that's the, the outstanding clarification. So, yeah. I would like to kind of turn turn gears here, if you guys don't mind, and talk about the the what I consider the more interesting portion uh, of this is the. I mean, the science is absolutely interesting, but but it's uh, the social aspect of how we deal with viruses, and you know, it, it, the reason 
why people don't test in our hobby well, the reasons because there, there's like there's the, there's the whole we can do this but but i think the elephant in the room is why we're not doing this because we certainly have capability to to test for some of these viruses uh, as we've clearly you know talked about why are people so hesitant to want to test for a virus if i'm a big breeder why would i absolutely come you know Jay breaking into the room about I, I'm not no I'm not I don't I'm not going to test for this I, I why should I have to test for this everything in my collection looks fine acts fine it's fine yeah that's a that's a tricky question especially with the reptile hobby um, if you don't mind I'll I'll go go first on this one but the uh, go for the, it the the idea that um, where where there's nothing you can really do except for euthanize an animal that that sometimes and and in a hobby where or a industry or whatever you want to call it where we often blackball people who who come forward that that report outbreaks or report you know cases of disease nobody seems to want to buy animals from that person anymore which is completely off base because i would suggest everybody has some kind of issue or another that they're going to have to deal with if they keep any number of snakes for any amount of time um you're you're going to have mites at some point you're going to have bacterial or viral infections at some point and so it, you know ignoring that or something because you think oh i'm just going to be blackballed that's that's a sad state that we are in right now. <laughs> I don't know. I don't have a great answer for, for how we get around that. What, what do you think, Travis? Do you got any? Yeah. I mean, I would say it probably comes down to, you know, I would say there are three major reasons. Um, one of them is, yeah, the, the blackballing nature that just, the, there's so much infighting in this hobby anyways, that, hey, let's throw one more reason to fight um, on top of it. Um, and the others would just be aspects of money and time. You know, mm -hmm. for a smaller breeder, it might make sense to test your whole collection because, mm -hmm. you know, testing 5, 10, 20, 30 snakes isn't going to take you that long and depending on, you know, yeah, everybody has their own specific financial situation, but that's not a lot of money. If you are somebody like, you know, Justin Kobilka or the guys at Nerd or, you know, Barcheck, that's, you know, when you're dealing with hundreds upon hundreds of animals, the time debt involved in testing every one of those animals is massive. And the financial debt that you would incur there is not insignificant as well. Yeah. So, you know, yeah, in some respects, it makes sense that they don't do it because, you know, if you've got 500 snakes, you know, that's, that's an entire year worth of time to test all of them, basically. And the cost to that is going to be a huge part of your bottom line. So... You don't test, and then you don't want to talk about the fact that you don't test because when people are like, well, you know, Kabilka is this leading name, so he should be testing everything. Well, you know, it's it's a it's a really bad way to think about it. And you know, I'm just grabbing names out of the air. I'm not slamming anybody yeah. or saying yeah. anybody actually has this. I want that absolutely <laughs> clear. Um, yeah. You know, 
Kobilka is a name that everybody knows, so I grab him. Um, you know, it's not unreasonable for Justin to say, like, there's no way I can run my facility properly and test every single one of my animals. And it's not a realistic expectation that we should expect him to do that. Mm -hmm. um, but it should also not be unrealistic for, you know, if just, if you buy a snake from Justin for you to test that snake, if it comes back positive, you know, if the snake is not, physically outwardly sick when it gets to you or you know as you mentioned with you know breeding season causing stress and stress can sometimes manifest or allow the virus to pop up or any disease to pop up because when you're stressed your immune system goes down you know so you test your animal if it hits positive you know you should still be quarantining that animal regardless because it's a brand new animal to your collection hmm. you know put it in quarantine but Tell the person you bought from, you know, I bought your animal. I, you know, obviously I just bought this animal. I tested it. It tested positive. It's in quarantine. Let's see how it does. You know, if it starts drooling and slobbering and hacking and rolls, then you had something nasty. Yeah. But if, if it does not manifest any disease, if it stays fine and healthy through, you know, 30, 60, 90 days, however long you quarantine, then it could very well be, like you said, just um, another one of these, you know, kind of prevalent but benign strains. And he shouldn't be put on blast for that because, like you noted, we could all, anybody who has a sizable collection probably has something floating around in it. And, you know, that's just the nature of how we are. You know, we hear about how all reptiles have salmonella. You don't hear everybody freaking out whenever, you know, yeah. everybody in the hobby freaking out of you know well somebody got salmonella well you know yeah you know, the public freaks out about it because the public thinks it's a big deal but quite frankly more people get salmonella from boston market probably than they get from their <laughs> reptiles in a year yeah oh so, yeah <laughs> <laughs> so it's disclaimer it's, we don't uh suppose yeah. that boston market has salmonella. <laughs> no again just <laughs> yeah. i'm grabbing a restaurant name out of the ether um <laughs> you know, it's there's there's so much stigma around it because of the unknown factor that, mm -hmm. you know, on one side, I think, you know, the people who are against testing, they're worried about the blacklisting and, you know, depending on their size, the, the time and money debt that's occurred to them. Yeah. But then on the other side, the people who are for testing are completely ignoring the fact that, you know, you're dealing with collection sizes and types and behaviors that are so unlike your own that you you can't expect everybody to adhere to your own behavior mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. i don't think it's unreasonable for everybody buying a new animal to get a test for it because it's a new animal that you're bringing into your collection but you should be doing that anytime you buy a pet you know you buy a new puppy it's the first thing you do you take it to the vet for a wellness visit Mm -hmm. You know, the dog may test positive for something, you know, one thing that's very common with most puppies is, you know, roundworm. It's just common. It happens. Yeah. If your dog, you know, if you take your puppy in and it tests positive for roundworm, if you've got other dogs, you keep the puppy away from the other dogs. You treat it. Once it doesn't test positive for roundworm anymore, you can interact it with your dogs. 
you know, if your snake tests positive for something and you quarantine it and then you test later and it's not testing positive, then there's no reason to panic. If it never had any symptomology, if it didn't roll over and die, I don't think you need to freak out and panic. Yeah. yeah. And and all, all collections probably have their own, you know, blend of pathogens. And this probably, I mean, that definitely applies to wild populations too, is that they're, the pathogens don't necessarily want to wipe out their hosts. You know, they don't want to kill off their, the, the population. And so most, most viral diseases have a, a very low mortality rate. You know, they, they might make you sick, but then you spread the disease and you get over the disease and then somebody else has to deal with it and you go on your merry way, you know, like, um, something like these, these, uh, diseases that maybe have a very high mortality rate, they're probably not human pathogens in the first place. They're probably incidental pathogens that spilled over into the human population. And they're and, probably completely asymptomatic in their primary host. Yeah, right? exactly. Generally speaking, like, exactly. And or, so you know, and, it's, and, and, it's, yeah, it's the spillover effect. And I think yeah. we probably see the same thing with, you know, like serpentaviruses, you know, mm -hmm. I think that, you know, like you, you mentioned Steve, how he's found, you know, this one that doesn't seem to do anything. You know, he, he said that he saw like, you know, like, 60 or 80 different isolates of this same subfamily of them, we'll call it, yeah. you know, if you look at it at a, on a taxonomic level, you know, it's like, it's a branch on a phylogenetic tree, this yeah. whole group of them, you know, he's seen them, but he's never seen them cause disease. But then there's a whole other group of these serpentaviruses that cause disease. And maybe what that is, is those disease causing serpentaviruses, spilled over from a different species and in yeah. that other species they're basically benign but now they've gotten into something where they just burn up like wildfire mm -hmm. and, <laughs> and 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 this would be to your case travis about why you would want to test in a collection because potentially depending upon the diversity of your collection you could start to see some of that potential spillover from a a, a virus that's you know asymptomatic non-disease causing that gets into some something else you have and maybe starts causing disease or, or runs through it like wildfire. Correct. Is that, I would say potentially, but um, we don't have that knowledge. So you're, sure. you're, you're just making calls in the dark and that's, that's just potentially as dangerous as, <laughs> you know, as, as the opposite, but I, the, I think that's testing. what I'm saying so is like, the, yeah, it's just, you, it could be as bad as not testing. Sometimes, not sometimes knowledge, you know, where, where you don't understand it is, is not necessarily knowledge and it's just yeah, having a fact and then trying to run with that and making calls that are beyond what, what our understanding is at this point, it could be as potentially damaging to your collection as, as not doing anything, you know? Yeah. So yeah, is, it's it, tricky it's, to say. You know, knowledge is good, but sometimes too little knowledge is just as bad as no knowledge at all. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, you know, but at the same time, you know, if, even if you're just testing, if, if the hobby as a whole tested more and we got a better feel for just the baseline kind of of really how prevalent these things are it it might actually sort of in a contrary manner give a little bit of a a security and understanding of you know like if everybody tested and we found out that 70% of animals test positive at some point asymptomatically and never, ever go on, you know, if I've got a 23 year old animal and I've tested it and it's, it's got 
a viral load, but I, it's never shown disease in the entire time that I've had it. And I test babies that I've grown up, you know, and it, they've never tested positive. Then that shows that in and of itself shows that we have, you know, a more benign one. But mm -hmm. if I'm also testing and I find an animal that pops hot and I keep it in quarantine and a month later it's drooling and coughing and having issues, then that shows, okay, this is a potential problem strain. So I know that I'm not going to pull this animal into my main collection. And the breeder knows that I tested it and he has something to be a little bit more aware of so that if he sees any of his animals that start coughing, snotting, mucusing, he's going to want to isolate them immediately as well. So yeah. if we all started testing a little bit more, it would help us get more of this information and inform us better. But yeah. you know, the knee jerk that we have where people on both sides are screaming at each other, I think that helps keep the, the testing level down so much that, you know, we have a handful of people who test the ever-loving hell out of things, but we have a greater majority of the hobby that's not testing because of these, you know, this blackballing and everything that happens. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard that from, from bigger breeders that are like, you know, it costs me hundreds of thousands of dollars to get everything tested. And then what do I do? Then everybody's like, oh, he's got nidovirus. I'm not buying anything, you know, from that guy, that mm -hmm. kind of thing. Um, I would also want to maybe hit on the, uh, you know, false positive, false negative. Um, I, I had a, a PhD student that was uh, also a veterinarian. He was doing his residency in veterinary pathology. And I was talking to him about, he, he was kind of teaching me about uh, these different tests. You know, I was asking about the nidovirus uh, tests and, you know, some, some places were cheaper than others to get your samples tested and things. And I was trying to figure out, you know, which one would be a better source to use. And he said, it depends on how well they validated their assay and the controls that they use. Cause he says a lot of these kind of fly by night um, testing labs will offer tests for things, but they don't control it properly. And so, you know, the, the results are almost meaningless. And another factor in this is that we are trusting the keeper to collect the sample rather than a, you know, competent vet or somebody that, you know, collects it in the proper manner. So you need to weigh that in a little bit too. You need to learn how to uh, collect a sample properly, um, not contaminate, like, you know, if you're handling different animals that you think are sick and you're using, you know, your unwashed hands between each animal, you could be sp spreading disease or you could be getting false positives by contaminating the new swab with your hands versus, you know, it's not coming from the animal, it's coming from your hands. So mm -hmm. there's different factors that could play into uh, a test result that uh, could be misleading or could, you know, lead you down the wrong path um, where you might think an animal's infected when it's in fact not, or maybe you introduce the infection because you're collecting improperly or, you know, you're, you're spreading the disease by trying to figure out if you have the disease. Um, that could be a potential uh, downside of, of, you know, trying to test your animals. Yes. And, you know, not just, you know, like looking at stringencies and things, but there's also the nature of the type of test. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, these are all PCR-based tests, but some of them are as... I'm, we're going to get scientific jargon here. I'll, I'll fall back and explain it in a moment. <laughs> so there are what they call degenerate tests and then the quantitative <laughs> tests. 
Um, and most typically, the quantitative tests are extremely, extremely sensitive, but they're also extremely, extremely specific. So if you have a strain that's even marginally different, the quantitative test can miss it because of that sensitivity level. So if we're dealing with, you know, a super problematic strain and that's all we care about, then that test may be really good for telling you whether or not it's there. But if that's the only one that I've been using to test my collection and I know that, you know, this quantitative test works for the problem strains and my collection is free of problem strains and I sell you an animal and you test it and you send it to someplace else that uses the degenerate test. Those degenerate tests are ten they tend to be more broadly, you know, applicable. They, they pick up things that not just that one, but a whole group of them. So it's kind of like, you know, a quantitative test is this test only looks for orange tabby cats. Whereas a degenerate test is this test looks for cats. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So if I know that I don't have an orange tabby cat in my collection, I'm not worried about it because it's the orange tabby cats that are the problem. But if you send it to a company and their test is saying we test for cats, well, now you test positive, but I've tested negative, and you're yelling at me that I sent you a diseased animal. Well, no, I sent you an animal that has a cat, but <laughs> I know it's not a problem cat, so mm -hmm. we're all good. And mm -hmm. I think that's a huge part of this. You know, People say that false positives are really common with these tests. I don't think that's the case. I think we're looking at different tests from different companies are picking up different strains at different sensitivities. Yeah. There's, there's more conserved areas of viruses, like, uh, as far as their genetic information there, there's areas where they're more conserved. And so you'd expect to see a hit between more, uh, you know, a variety of animals and then there's or a variety of viruses. And then there's, uh, some areas of the virus that are very unique to that virus. And so if you're targeting or amplifying that region of the, the viral genome, then you're going to be more specific in your test. Like, Travis was saying. So, you know, we need to know the test we're getting. And, and, and that's, I mean, that's the trick too, because a lot of these um, labs might just say, Hey, we need a nitovirus test. That's hot. Everybody wants a nitovirus test and they just pull something out of their butt and it may not be the best test. And, and that's something that not know, if being... it comes from your butt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. no, that's not good well Sorry. the test should be actually done with the coanal swab so oh. not, not your butt the other end oh. anyway yeah that was a term that i i got to learn i didn't know the the term coanal coanal Co is, is that like is that the, like that sounds like it, it it like because it's like coanal it, it they're actually including <laughs> the person who has to swab your butt Right. Is that, is that uh, that's the, I'm, sorry, I'm, we're, I'm sorry, right, Travis, right, we uh, are, so. we are sliding into inappropriate. Uh... It's fine. Okay. Uh, <laughs> but, um, well, not, but, but you know, the, the, uh, the, idea that, 
that there could be labs out there that don't have the best test, but they also have the cheapest prices. So somebody going, Hey, I need to test 50 animals. I'm going to go with the cheapest price may not be getting the best test, you know? And so they may get a bunch of nonsense information, false negatives, false positives, whatever you want to say, but it, it could not be, um, what, you know, in useful information. So Justin was talking to me about, um, morph market, just kind of instituted or is going to institute um a policy around testing um right justin is that yeah they, or, or, or they, they, they were cry. talking about doing the, trying to <laughs> yeah. yeah 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 so i'll um and i'm gonna put a small caveat here so i i do Forgive me if this was already discussed. No, uh, no, this I is fine. Listened. I mean, it, okay. we discussed it yeah. in the snakes and stogies, but it's it doesn't hurt to discuss okay. it again okay. here because you know different audiences and sure. different people. Um, so, like I said, small caveat here. I do work with John at Morph Market. Some I'm, you know, he considers me part of his staff. That said, I am not part of the policy making staff. You know, I help him around the forums. Um, you know, I help him a little bit with like you know, if somebody throws up a or complaint saying a morph is incorrectly labeled, you know, I'm one of the people who, you know, there's a handful of us, they'll pass it to us. We'll look it over and see, you know, yes, that morph is, you know, that's the type of, you know, staff that I am for mm -hmm. morph market. So I don't mm -hmm. set the policies. Um, so don't say that what I'm saying here is gospel. Now I have talked with John some about this. So what I'm saying is I do believe right, but John absolutely has the right to override anything that I say. His policy was basically saying, and he tried, he, he had launched this and then it hit the social media and went on fire. And yeah. so they walked it back. <laughs> but what the policy basically said was, you know, almost everybody has terms and services. And in that terms and services, it says, you know, we guarantee our animal is healthy. If it comes to you sick, you have, you know, two hours, four hours, 12 hours to tell us this. And we'll make it right. And John recognized that, you know, with some of these viruses and things, if people are getting tests, you can't get those test results back in two hours or four hours. Mm -hmm. So the morph market policy was basically saying, unless your own terms and services is written that says, we will not accept a viral test after, you know, it's done. If somebody gets tested, the animal comes back positive and they want to, you know, resolve this with the buyer or with the seller by sending it back because they don't want this diseased animal, that morph market would side with the buyer. So, you know, that was what the policy was. But like I said, once it hit social media and because of all the bad information and misinformation out there, so many people were like, you know, Morph Market is mandating testing by breeders. And that's absolutely not what happened. But it, it's the buyer it hit so hard testing. and so fast. And so many people were screaming and yelling that John went, okay, this did not come out the way we wanted it to come out. And there is so much pushback. So he walked back on it. And I understand why he did it. I don't fault him for doing it because like, you know, just what I saw publicly, I mean, quite frankly, I'm ashamed of some of the things that I saw some people say because yeah. it just, it was wrong and obnoxious and horrible. Um, on a personal level, I don't think what John did was inappropriate or 
even crossing any boundaries, really. Um, you know, frankly, I think it was very much in line with legitimizing the hobby more, which is something that I have seen, you know, the, just the way John has moved Morph Market forward. It's been something that I have seen him do. You know, he's he's making reptile keeping more legitimate. And so, you know, that, that same thing I said about, you know, when you buy a puppy, you take it to the vet to get it checked out. You know, I see that as a legitimate form of wellness care that we see in other forms of the, or in other sides of the pet industry that we don't see here. And so by John saying, you know, if somebody decides to test their animal, if they take photographic or video proof that they do it right after the animal was purchased and received and they send it out and they come back and get a positive test, they should have a recourse and we will side with them unless it's already written into the terms and service of the seller that the buyer should have written or read that they won't do that, you know. If you go buy a dog from somebody and you sign paperwork that says, once you walk out of here with the dog, I don't care what's wrong with it. I'm never taking it back. You know, that's, you know, that's on you as the buyer. If you didn't read that terms and services, but if it's not written in there and you bring the, the, the puppy back because it's got something that, you know, is terrible and horrible, that seller should be like, you're right. You know, I didn't realize the dog was sick. I'll take the dog back. Here's your money back. You know, it, it was a legitimization thing that I saw. And so I'm, like I said, on a personal level, I'm disappointed that everybody, and again, this is both sides because it, it turned into that, you know, if you don't test all of your animals then you're a terrible, horrible person, you should go to hell and you shouldn't be selling snakes. And the other people who are like, it's not reasonable for John to say that all of us have to test all of our snakes all of the time. You know, both sides went to the extreme and nobody came into the center and said, Hey, you know, maybe this testing thing isn't terrible. It's not something I'd thought of. Maybe I need to rewrite my terms and services a little bit differently so that it says, you know, if the animal is outwardly sick within four hours, I need to know if you test the animal, it comes back positive. We need to have a longer conversation. You know, mm -hmm. I don't think that's a terrible thing to have written into your terms of service. And that's yeah, and I, I think I what John was driving at, but I think everybody kind of missed it because of there's so much heat around this topic. Yeah, I, I would say on the other side of the coin, using that anal analogy, you know, we know a lot more about dogs and dog pathogens and, you know, other mammalian pathogens than we do about snake pathogens. So again, just because you get a positive test doesn't mean you have a sick animal, right? So yes. I, I could see, you know, on, on the other side that, yeah, that's, that's a legitimate concern that just because somebody gets a positive test doesn't mean that's a sick animal. Now, I, I, I often use uh, the, the analogy of, of mouse colonies, you know, in this discussion, because a lot of times we have snake colonies that have just gotten used to the pathogens in our room and they're mm -hmm. not outwardly sick. The pathogens are under control within the animals. As long as the animals are happy, you know, they're the, the pathogens kind of maintain their normal little uh, balance or whatever you want to call it. It's like if you have a mouse colony, if you bring in an, a group of mice to introduce to your mouse colony and you just throw them in your colony, all your mice are going to die. Usually, colony you know, crash. Because the colonies usually have pathogens that the other colony may not have been exposed to or used to. And so you're going to have sick animals. And, most I, and I would, and I would say anybody who's bred mice and done that has probably experienced. Yeah. It. Yeah. Like it's, so, I mean, that's uh, like, I, yeah, I, a hundred percent. And so I think a, a breeder can be 
legitimately like I, I sold an animal and, you know, and it went to another and it was very healthy when it was here. I had no problems with it, but then it gets undergoes that stress, gets exposed to potentially pathogens from a new um, colony if they don't, you know, quarantine it well enough or, yeah. and that's a, that's a tricky thing to try to introduce animals that may not be used to the, the balance of the room or whatever. And so that's, you know, that's something to consider as well, that that could be going on with our reptile colonies, just like it is with a, a mouse colony that they have their own pathogens that could be problematic in, um, animals that are not used to those pathogens, just like yeah. a, a different serpentovirus, um, you know, that, that doesn't occur necessarily in carpet pythons, but it does occur in green trees and it transmits from a green tree to a carpet. It could maybe have severe consequences that way. And, you know, there's just, we, we just don't have the understanding to know what's going to happen when we mix and match and move things around. So, and I, and I think overall, like for myself, it's, it's made me very conscious of what I'm bringing into my collection. And I'll, I'll generally only want to start with very young animals um, because they're usually going to have a lot less issues. They're going to have a lot less exposure to, to pathogens. If you can get animals that are, you know, fairly young, you're probably going to avoid a lot of issues. But if you're getting a, a colony of animals of adult breeder animals, and that's a dangerous move. And, and you probably want to have those in a separate facility if you can separate uh, collection room. So just, just another <laughs> something to think about. Yeah. And, and I don't disagree. You know, I'm not, I, I don't think it should immediately go to if I, if my animal tests positive or if the animal gets sick, then that automatically paints, you know, the other breeder in a bad light. It just, yeah. I think if the animal tests positive after you receive it, you, there needs to be a more open avenue of discussion. It shouldn't just mm -hmm. be the finger pointing thing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I should feel free to get my animals tested without having to seek permission from the seller. Yeah. But the seller should also feel comfortable knowing that people may test animals when they get them mm -hmm. and whatever the answers are, well, it's not even a matter of whatever, because if the answer is negative, then nobody's really going to hear about it. But if there are, <laughs> if there is a positive test result back, oh my then, gosh, he's <laughs> then there should be a a civilized and adult conversation between the buyer and the seller, yeah. and that yeah. I think is extremely important. And you know, again, as we all know, this this hobby has a tendency to rip itself apart from the inside <laughs> in a lot of different ways. And I think this, I think the blow up that we saw when John pushed that policy out was just another symptom of that. I, yeah. I know that in his heart, John was going for a very positive thing. And I think the hobby just ripped itself apart. And, one and, more time. and, and you know, I mean, yeah. something that this discussion is clearly laid bare for me is that, that both sides have some sort of responsibility towards understanding, you know, a way forward, uh, that, that makes sense. If, 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 you know, there's, if, you somebody comes back with a positive test doesn't that person who potentially sold that animal have the right to be like all right what test did you get what you know where did you get this done what is the what you know what what is the uh the method and manner this test was done because that potentially matters and at the same time like you know it, it's it, there's a there, there's push pull forces there uh and, and i think 
finding a, a way to get both sides, you know, you can't just let the, the, well, we should, I mean, we all agree, maybe we're better off testing. Right. But, but you can't just let that side that says we should test everything no matter what at all the time, all day long, you know, rule the conversation because you miss a huge slice of the nuanced argument when you, when you just go one direction or the other, which is so interesting because we are so polar opposite when we have these kinds of discussions, especially in the reptile community. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, we, <clears throat> it's how any, I mean, I think the testing in the reptile hobby should follow the testing, you know, for basically any other medical type testing that you would think of if it's mm -hmm. for your dog, you know, you take your dog when it's sick or right when you buy a brand new dog, because that's what you do. You don't take mm -hmm. your dog. Well, you do take your dog when it's not sick, because there are other laws that say you have to take your dog every year to make sure that it's rabies vaccine is up to date, you know. But by the same token, you also have a wellness visit as a human every year. You're supposed to go and see a doctor. Now, some people don't go and see doctors except and unless they are sick. You know, but so if that's how you do it with your snakes, then how are you being any different than you would anywhere across the board? But, mm -hmm. you know, and that's part of, again, a bigger uh, thing because, you know, yeah, there aren't as many reptile vets out there. So it's like, well, of course we don't take our snakes for wellness visits. There aren't vets that do wellness visits. But if your snake is sick, you should be finding a vet. And yes. throughout the hobby, there's a lot of at-home medicine that is executed that, you know, on the one hand, you know, yeah, we all feel that it's fine. To, you know, I'm sure that there are plenty of people out there who treat their new snakes with fipronil. Um, you know, it used to be all the rage for people to just give their snakes batril. You know, snakes got a respiratory infection. Just give it batril. Give it batril. Give it batril. You know, there's a reason batril doesn't work anymore because everybody was doing that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, you know, so... It's not unreasonable to say that we should be treating our snakes the same way we would be treating any of our other pets. Yeah. Test when necessary, but all the time is not what's necessary. It's when you get it, when it's sick. Yeah. And I, w I would definitely agree with that. I think, uh, you know, hopefully this, this, uh, has, this discussion has passed on some information that's helpful to, to understand, you know, when it's important to test and what the results might mean or what they might not mean and uh, move forward, you know, in a thoughtful manner. Uh, you know, hopefully people are, are listening and, and saying, I need a, a better uh, biocontainment program, or I mm -hmm. need to think about that for my own collection and how I'm going to deal with with uh, an outbreak or, or some sort of pathogen or some sick snake. You know, we need, you need a plan and you need to prepare for these things. And, and part of that plan would would uh, include testing and and helping you uh, better inform your decisions and how you work with the animals and what you might do to to help those animals. So, um, I know I just uh, kind of sided with you there at the end, <laughs> but, but you know I think testing in the right uh, in the right place in the right time is is definitely very important. Um, but we also need to understand the other side. And, and I think everybody just needs to find that balance. We get so polarized with everything we think about these days. You know, y'all, if you haven't picked a side and defend that side to the death and not allow any other, you know, input to come in from the other side, 
you're, you're in the wrong. You know, if you're, if you're making those decisions, you know, in an echo chamber, that's probably a dangerous place to be, you know, like get, get the other side, get the other information, get both, you know, weigh both options, think about both things and see what's going to be best for, for your animals. Cause that's what, you know, what's important. Yes. All right. Well, we definitely appreciate your time, Travis, and your and your insight and your uh, helpful uh, information here. This has been a really uh, productive and good discussion, and uh, we really I appreciate, appreciate you having me on, gentlemen. The invitation yeah, was been nice good. to have. Yeah, we'll we'll have to have you back for for another. Uh, oh yeah, he's coming uh, back. Scientific discussion. <laughs> yeah, oh, this yeah. is really great, and uh, we're uh, thankful for for everybody that's listening. Uh, wish you happy holidays and. Uh, we will catch you later for another edition of Reptile Fight Club. Doctor, doctor, and we're out! <laughs> Fight Club.